3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. I am so glad that you joined me this week. You know, this is the best time of the week is when you put your earbuds in and you're out for a run, you're out for a walk, maybe you're driving to work, maybe you are at work and some things that you need some background noise on, whatever you're doing, I just appreciate you taking me along. We have a fantastic show today about how to burn bodies, the science of burning bodies, things like that. We'll get into that in just a moment. I wanted to uh, give you a little bit of an update and and an apology. I think I talked about this last week as well, but we had sent out an email to all of our email groups about the decrease in cost in the monthly membership. And for some reason, the link didn't work. Uh, We thought we corrected it. We sent it out again, and the link still didn't work. Well, that has been corrected now. I have not sent out a new email, but I will tell you that if you're interested in being a part of the monthly membership, it's $27. If you are already a member at the higher price, your next billing will come down. So everybody gets the the price. So I'm not going to leave you up high and bring everybody else down. It's come down to $27 a month. For $27 a month, you're going to get a new online training dropped into your dashboard. Uh, There's some live Q&As, office hours type things we do sometimes, PDF version of the magazine. There's all kinds of things that you can get within that group. And for $27 a month, you're going to get all of your ABMDI credits during the time that you need them. You're going to get other ongoing training. You're going to get access to uh, group conversations, things like that. It's a no-brainer. $27 a month is is, is absolutely no question that it's worth it. So uh, go to cornertalk.com, click on the Academy link. The Academy link will take you over to the uh, e-learning, things like that, and you can choose which you would want. Now, when this comes out live, this is the end of April 2019, and we have our next MDI, Medical Legal Death Investigation, online academy starting in May, May 11th to be exact. So if you're listening to this when it first comes out, you've only got about a week and a half, two weeks before that starts. That is a full 40 plus hours online academy. Everything you need is in is included in that. All the books, all the material, everything's downloadable. And then, of course, you get an option to take the national exam after that. So please jump over there if you're interested in this spring getting uh, your medical legal death investigation course. I had some questions. People ask, well, I'm not in the industry. Can I take this course? Yes. So this course is designed not only for those that are working in the industry and want to further their career, get some better education, maybe uh, continued education hours for ABMDI posts, things like that. It is also designed for those folks looking to enter the industry. We start you from the beginning of what medical legal death investigation is, and we go through all kinds of cases, all ways to investigate certain things, ways to draw talks and crime scenes and all kinds of, we will walk you through it. That's what this course is do is to is to improve your skills or help you get started. So that is a great course. It starts every other month. And in this case, it starts May 11th. 
And then, of course, the last thing I'm going to mention is if you're looking for some short courses like service and buried body recovery, some interview interrogations, a week or two week long crime scene investigation course, all of that stuff is hosted at our facility in Missouri. So go to our website, again, the Academy website, and look at the current training schedule. We can even bring some scenario type training to you. I know we're going to Maine this year. We're going to Mississippi this year. We're going to Arkansas this year, Missouri this year. We've got a lot of states that we're looking to take some training to. And if you want us to come, me or somebody else to come to your state, we can do that as well. So without any further delay, let's get into today's conversation. All right, so let's talk about today's show. Today, I want to talk about the science of burning bodies, the science of burn victims. What can we learn as death investigators from a victim that succumbed to a fire? Now, maybe the fire uh, is the cause of death. Maybe the fire killed them, or maybe they were dead prior to the fire. And how can we tell that? And what are some things that changes in the body? What are some things we can see? What if there was a prior injury? Can we tell that if the body is very burnt? How burnt can it be before we don't know anything? There's a lot of science around that. And I'm going to have back on Dr. Elaine Pope, which is uh, uh, the forensic anthropologist, and she is an expert in the study of burned bodies and burned body evidence. And so we're going to talk at length today about how to investigate, what to look for, how you can see changes in uh, a body that's been burnt and what to look for that doesn't look correct. So, you know, has this body been moved or changed or what's wrong with this picture, so to speak? We're going to talk about all of that today as well. So before we do kind of a long interview, so without any further ado, let me get right into that interview. Dr. Elaine Pope. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. Dr. Pope, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you today. Hello. So tell us a little bit about your, um, you know, get us started here some. I kind of introduced you a little bit, but I'm sure I didn't do it much justice. So tell us a little bit about your background, some of your work history, some of the um, basis of where you've you've been and then kind of where you're at today. And then we'll get into some of the research that you've done and kind of how you can help us as investigators. Okay. Well, I started off as a forensic anthropologist. Um, I study bones of the skeleton. And um, I got my doctorate at the University of Arkansas, and um, I've worked both at a university system as well as a coroner system, a medical examiner system. And um, basically, I burn bodies and study the burn patterns that are created in uh, in the skin, in the subcutaneous fat, in the muscle, and especially the bone. And that's where I become interested in. Where the where heat meets the uh, skeleton and the burn patterns that are produced on the skeleton. And so, too, and now currently you are in Virginia, is that right? Correct. I'm in uh, at the medical examiner's office in Tidewater uh, District in Norfolk, Virginia, and I do autopsies at the medical examiner's office and also do forensic anthropology. And so, uh, there's there's opportunities, I guess, that sometimes people will send you information or you can consult and things on certain cases outside of Virginia sometimes, right? Correct. Yes. I do private casework. Um, people will send me pictures of burned remains and ask me to talk about the patterns and 
possibly the duration of how long the body burns for. Uh, that helps them out with narrowing down an alibi. Um, and uh, so we have the burn patterns. We have the duration. Uh, a lot of times we look at the body in within its environment in terms of how it burns. Because a, a body's going to burn differently in a house fire than it will in a car fire. Um, just because of the size of the environment. Like, say, for example, a car fire is a lot smaller and has uh, a lot of combustible fuels in it. So it'll create burn patterns at a much greater rate than, say, in a structure fire that has, um, you know, wood uh, furnishings as well as plastic furnishings. So it's a broader space. And so the development of the fire takes a little bit longer. The dynamics of the fire are a little bit different in a structure than they are in a vehicle. So it depends on the, the scene that the body comes from as to the, the um, you know, the time and the duration and the, the temperatures that will affect the burning to the body. Right. And I want to get into some of those um, individually with structures and with houses and different and different things. Uh, I want to back up just a minute and want to talk a little bit uh, about some of the research. I, I met you at a conference and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to sit with a few other people and, and at your same table and have lunch a couple of years ago. And, and you're a very fascinating person. And you had <laughs> talked about some research you had done. And I, and I find it fascinating, uh, too, for our listeners to talk about some of the research to show that this is not just textbook. These are actual research that you've done on, 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 on body parts and on bodies. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the um, research that you've done, some of the um, different types uh, uh, with the body parts or, or with the environments that you've done and what you found out of some of those over the years. Uh, and basically what I'm doing is I'm, 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 I want to set the groundwork to show, number one, that obviously you know what you're talking about, and number two, it kind of gives us basis for our listeners to say, you know, wow, I didn't even know that research was even done out there, because this is something that oh, okay. isn't necessarily talked about. Okay. Okay, so the research I do, I do it every year out in California, San Luis Obispo, California. And um, we get bodies from a place in Memphis, Tennessee, and they're driven out every year. And each year we build structures. We build houses and we build, uh, we have cars and we have outdoor fires and different types of scenarios. And the bodies are placed in these different types of scenarios. And we observe and we document the time and the temperature um, of, of all the heat-related changes that occur in these different environments. And we replicate them over and over and over and over. And that's how we've been able to discover patterns that result from vehicle fires and from structure fires and from outdoor fires that are intentionally set. Um, and so this research has been going on for the past um, nine years. We're coming up on our ninth year this year. And it's uh, out in San Luis uh, Obispo, California. And um, like I said, it's, it's all based on human bodies and how they respond to heat. So the soft tissues, the skin, the fat, and the muscle, and the bone. And it's a, it's a teaching course as well, and students get to participate in the burning process. They get to observe bodies burn. So that way, the next time that they go to testify uh, in their court cases, their casework, they can say that they've seen a body burn and they understand the mechanics behind it and uh, the process behind it. So that's yeah. So obviously that is valuable research uh, because you're not just looking at at a crime scene 
um, or maybe not a crime scene, but you're not just looking at a crime scene, you're looking at something that's in a controlled environment, so you get uh, controlled results time and time again, which will then give us the idea of what to look for in a crime scene setting. So, so let's talk a little bit about what happens to a body during the burning process. And I want to start first with um, an outdoor scene. The reason I want to start okay. there is there's nothing else around. I mean, you're not in a structure. You're not, you know, you don't have the high intensity heat buildup. It's like open air. So what causes the body to burn and it kind of becomes its own wick? How does, how does that take place? Correct. Okay. So we've done bodies outdoors um, in the absence of structures and in the absence of vehicles. Um, and we've done them with ignitable liquids where ignitable liquids are poured onto the body. And the ignitable liquids will burn for the first five minutes. And then they basically burn out. And then if you get the development of a skin split on the body, um, which exposes subcutaneous fat, which becomes basically a fuel source in the fire, if you have those things in place, then the fire transitions from an ignitable liquid fire to a subcutaneous fat-fueled fire that can burn on its own for actually hours because the human has uh, so much subcutaneous fat in their body. They've got it under the skin. They've got it uh, in visceral fat and then also in marrow. So the body can burn on its own for several hours in an outdoor setting, and it does so first by uh, changes in the skin. And what we see, the earliest changes that occur are going to be blisters in the skin followed by skin splits because your skin is really elastic. And so it starts to split open uh, when it's exposed to heat from shrinkage. And then it exposes the layers of subcutaneous fat underneath, and that liquefies and it renders out and it becomes absorbed into whatever is surrounding the body. So if the body's wearing clothing, it can, it can become absorbed into clothing. And that turns into what's called the wick effect, where basically you've got subcutaneous fat that's liquefied and rendered becoming absorbed into an absorbent material like clothing or like, uh, you know, carpeting or wood floor um, or outdoor, you know, if we're talking about outdoor fire, um, you know, it could be into the, into the surrounding dried grass or any other materials under the body. So... That'll sustain, as long as there's subcutaneous fat coming from the body through the skin split, then you'll get um, a sustaining of the fire. And it'll continue to burn on its own for several hours if left unchecked. So the, it's not a very high-temperature fire. It doesn't put off a lot of light and doesn't put off a lot of heat. But it is a process that continues going, and the body will render down to muscle and down to the skeleton uh, within several hours of burning on its own. So why is it sometimes, and like I've worked cases where an older gentleman was about burning leaves and ended up with a heart attack and the, the fire continued to burn, burned to him, and then he did get burnt, but then burned past. And we've had, you know, three or four cases over the last few years like that where, you know, the fire burnt past him. We find him charred and in some form of burn, but the reason why I guess they never con he never continued to burn was because there wasn't enough heat to split skin or the clothes didn't catch right. or I mean, there's probably a lot of var uh, variables there. But why would some sure. bodies burn quicker than others when uh, yet it has fire all around it? Well, it depends on the amount of subcutaneous fat that the victim has. 
if you have a really skinny person, um, they may not have enough subcutaneous fat to continue a fire. Um, it may burn for like a few minutes or, you know, maybe, maybe even, you know, 30 minutes or so or up to an hour. Um, but somebody that, that's got a little bit more subcutaneous fat, somebody, um, and of course it comes down to, uh, the individual victim. You know, if they're male or female, uh, females are going to have higher concentrations of body fat than males do. Um, the age of the victim comes into play, um, you know, in terms of how much subcutaneous fat is present. Elderly people, um, a lot of times lose a lot of their subcutaneous fat and lose a lot of their muscle mass. And, um, you know, so, so it comes down to the, to the victim's body size. And, um, as well as the, the conditions of the fire, is there, um, you know, are, are the temperatures significant enough to cause splits or is it just enough to singe the, the hair and the, and the skin? Um, is there wind? You know, and we experienced that out in California where we have nice winds that come through and they ventilate the fires very, very well and leave, um, you know, leave nice burn patterns on the body as a result of that. And so as opposed to like stagnant air that you would find like maybe down in a, a higher uh, humidity area like Florida where you wouldn't have uh, such winds uh, like what we see. So there's there's different variables that come into play. You know, the types of clothing that the victim's wearing, the tightness of the clothing. Are they loose-fitting? Are they tight-fitting? Um, you know, because tight-fitting skinny jeans aren't going to burn very well. But loose-fitting... A loose fitting skirt would burn a lot better than, than tight fitting clothing because you gotta have oxygen, you gotta have air and circulation and heat and all those variables to, uh, to sustain the fire. And so it, it, it just kind of depends on, you know, like I said, it all comes back down to the victim as well as variables of the fires and how they burn and what comes in contact, uh, what body parts come in contact with the heat. And obviously I know that, uh, the, the body fat will, will burn a lot quicker. Like we all know, you know, fat will burn, but then the muscle burns, but not as fast as the fat. So does it, when the, when the fat renders down, does that help the muscle to burn or will the muscle actually burn on its own if the heat stays high enough? Well, the muscle, okay. So you have skin, which is really thin and it burns pretty quickly because it's the outermost layer of the body. And then it exposes the fat and that's the next layer. Underneath the fat is muscle, and muscle is a very poor fuel. It's very dense, and it's very fibrous, and it doesn't burn very well. So as far as a fuel source, muscle is not it. Um, we look to subcutaneous fat as far as fueling the fire, but muscle protects the bone. It protects the inner skeleton of the body, and um, and it does so in, in layers. And so we see that uh, different body parts have different layers and thicknesses of muscle. So you've got more muscle in your thigh than you do your fingertip. And so basically, you know, your thigh is going to remain protected a lot longer in the fire as a result of more muscle protection and more muscle mass as opposed to the fingers, which will burn off a lot quicker. Uh, the soft tissue and the muscle will burn off a lot quicker, but the bones remain. And that's one of the things I study is, once the muscle burns away, what happens to the bones that are underneath? And that's usually what's left for investigators in advanced cases of cremation. Uh, the bones are the things that remain of the victim 
uh, from those scenes. Well, on an outdoor scene, how does the burned body, how does it affected by, by insects? You know, that's where entomology comes into play here. So are, are insects just as active on a body, you know, after it's cooled, of course, but, but just as active on a body that's burnt, or they shy away from it more? Or, or will it really change? And I'm not asking to be an entomology expert, but will it really change the time frames, not during the burning, I know, but after it's cooled and if there's anything left, do insects start colonizing just about the same as they would on a non-burned victim? Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure, but what I can tell you is we've had, uh, we, out in California, we'll lay the bodies out, um, and in some cases we allow insects to, uh, infest the eyes and the nose and the mouth. And, um, what we found is during the fire that they'll bury inside the body and they'll bury underneath the ground and the maggots will. And later on after the fire's out, they'll come back and they'll, they'll resume their, uh, their feeding. And so I'm not sure what that does in terms of the postmortem interval for entomologists, but the fact that the bug evidence does survive um, is is pretty remarkable, in my opinion. Right, and if they're if they're still feeding and colonizing, that would tell me that uh, you know new flies or new insects would come because obviously there's viable food source there. At least whatever is left is viable food source. Right, right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about. You know, car accidents, people people being burned in cars, and I know you've studied that. It's a very in close quarters, high heat. H- how does a body burn differently in a, in a vehicle situation than it does outdoors? With We understand the intense heat inside is probably one of the main things, but is there anything else right. different that changes? Okay. Well, with a vehicle fire versus an outdoor fire, outdoor fire, you don't have the enclosure. So you don't have radiant heat. You lose the radiant heat. It goes out and dissipates out into the atmosphere. Whereas in a, in a car fire, vehicle fire, if you've got an enclosed area, a very small enclosed area, as a matter of fact, as opposed to a structure which is much bigger in its size and dimensions. And so you've got retention of radiant heat in addition to direct heat from open flames. And so it's a much more intense burning process for the body. And then it also depends on where the body is located within the vehicle. If the body is in the front seat of the vehicle, then it remains elevated in the bucket seat of the driver and or passenger seat. And so once the foam and upholstery burns away, you get even burn patterns all the way around. So to the back side, to the front side, under the legs, around the legs. And that's very different than a body that burns in the back seat, which ultimately after the foam and upholstery is burned away, um, there's a metal bench in the back seat. And that's not very conducive for um, for absorbing the uh, the subcutaneous fat and sustaining a fire. So a body in the back seat will burn a little bit differently. It won't burn quite as much as a body in the front seat simply because it's got points of contact where it's in contact with that metal bench. And then a body in the trunk is, I mean, cars are really exciting because you can have so many different microenvironments. And so a body in a trunk burns like a little miniature crematorium after about the first 30, 20 or 30 minutes in a vehicle fire. When you have breach of the back seat, which usually has some type of metal uh, structure to it that's perforated and, and has either holes or openings or whatever, so you get air that, that's transmitted through the back seat, and then it goes into the trunk, 
and it's transmitted out of the uh, the melted uh, taillight and other other openings in the in the trunk. And so you get this this nice gas air mixture or flame air mixture in inside that uh, inside that confined space, which also has a lot of elements of radiant heat as well. So depending on where your body's at, will kind of dictate the burn patterns that are created on the body. And so if you have one in the trunk and it burns for like 30 minutes, um, you know, you're not going to have a whole lot of damage. But if it burns for an hour or two hours or even longer, you can get it to where the bones are all that's left, to where all, you know, all the soft tissues burn away and all you're left with is simply a skeleton. And so um, that's, that's a very, you know, that's a very unique environment. And we don't find that in houses. We don't find that outdoors. We only find that with trunk. Um, and, you know, it's a unique, unique environment enough to where it skeletonizes the body within several hours. Well, let me back you up just a minute to an outdoor scene. Um, you know, let's say that we've stabbed our victim and um, to help cover up the evidence, because, you know, we've watched CSI and we know all about DNA now. So we're going to take our victim out in the woods and we're going to burn them. Okay, so they okay. Bur- they burn for a while, but of course they ended up they ended up going out for whatever reason. Um, the evidence of the stabbing or some other, uh, I mean, can that still be seen? Right, as long as we have some muscle tissue, we'll be able to see some things. So, tell me about Absolutely. wounds on burned bodies. Okay, wounds on burned bodies, uh, penetrating wounds, so stab wounds and gunshot wounds are very important because they change the configuration of the soft tissues. The soft tissues go, uh, they, they usually are in layers of skin, fat, and muscle, and bone, and they shrink and, and contract as, as intact structures. But when you have a penetrating injury, like a stab wound or a gunshot wound, it compromises those tissues. So they don't burn as an intact structure. They burn as separated structures. And so the wounds, the soft tissue wounds, will enlarge them. They become, they, they, they expand and the muscle, uh, basically the skin will expand and retract around the wound. Um, the fat will also retract around the wound and the muscle retracts around the wound. And so you get these defects in the body that are, that are going through multiple layers. And that's very different than normal heat related changes that we see in terms of skin splits. Um, skin splits are also perforations in the skin, but they only stop at subcutaneous fat. They don't penetrate down into muscle. Whereas true traumatic injury will penetrate down into these deeper tissues. And uh, in the burn patterns, heat will get down, not inside the tissue, but as the, as the tissues burn away and expose um, underlying bone, if bone has been affected, then... Um, then you've got the the muscles will start to shrink and retract and will expose, uh, you know, if there's a, say, for example, you have somebody shot in the head. Um, You have the scalp retracting back, and it'll expose the gunshot wound, entrance wound. And so then you get heat-related changes to the bone. And the bone will undergo color changes. It turns black first, and then it turns white and calcined bone which is where all the organics have basically been uh, pyrolyzed or burned away from the bone itself. And that's when bone becomes really brittle and really fragile is in its burned state. But wounds will open up and they'll permanently mark 
with those colors, with that black and with that calcination, um, it'll, if, if the body has a long enough time to burn, uh, then we'll have burn patterns in the bone that, that support the fact that there was a compromise in the soft tissues prior to the fire. Um, it won't burn normally. It leaves what we call abnormal burn patterns. And, um, and you can see abnormal burn patterns from penetrating injuries, such as gunshot wounds, um, stab wounds. You can also see abnormal burn patterns from broken bones. So say, for example, a person's in a motor vehicle accident with a head-on collision and they break their, their thigh bone, their femur. Um, basically what happens is even if, even if there's no penetrating injury coming out, even if the bone isn't sticking out, um, you'll still get an abnormal burn pattern to the leg because it'll shrink up to half of its size as basically the, the ends of the fracture are being pulled past one another inside the soft tissues, and it creates what's called limb deformation. And so it, the limb shortens up to half of its length if it's been broken prior to the fire. So there's multiple things that we look at for trauma. We look at entrance wounds. We look at stab wounds. Um, if, if a stab wound has impacted bone, it'll leave a linear incision or a chop mark or stab mark, something that can be interpreted after the fire at autopsy. And so those are the things that we look for, not only out in the field as well as at autopsy, um, to see those, those deeper wounding uh, wound tracks that, that have been affected by heat during the fire. Now, Kid, as long as we have muscle left... Um you can still find some bruising on the body as well. Of course, I know it could be burned past that, but we can still find some some bruising and some and some marks like that, can't we? Uh, theoretically, yes. If it's deep enough into the muscle, um, you'll still find you'll find hemorrhage. Uh, you'll find bleeding of the of the tissues, and that would be discovered at autopsy um, by a forensic pathologist, right? Um, and and that would be done by dissection. So right. that's not something, you can't look at the body, a burned body, and tell if there's bruising. Right, because there's a lot of stuff, depending on how long they've been under the fire, there's a lot of stuff that under, that's unrecognizable. Well, you start talking about bones a second ago and how, you know, broken bones make things look a little different. Well, you know, a lot of the burn victims that I've dealt with over the years, uh, you know, the skull will, will um, it, you, you almost think that the skull, they've been shot. You know, there's a hole in the skull, but that's not what it's from. You know, you have you. Right. I mean, the the skull under uh, makes some changes in very intense heat. Talk about that for just a moment. Okay. Um, as far as uh, talk about like holes in the skull. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of burn victims, uh, especially car accident burn victims, where um, there's actually the skull will actually break apart, and you can almost okay. almost think that that's an injury. You know, uh, uh, but it's not. Okay. All right. Well, as far as the skull, and this is an interesting thing that um, that's been around for a while. So the way that the head burns, it burns in layers, and the first layer that we see is going to be the scalp retracting back and exposing broad surfaces of the skull, particularly the forehead and the top of the skull. Whereas everything below your eyes is is thickly protected by muscle and soft tissue. So everything below the eyes, like your cheeks and your neck and everything else is very well protected. But the top of your head is poorly protected by the scalp and by skin of the forehead. And so that burns off pretty quickly in the fire within the first few minutes. And basically, 
what's left is broad surfaces of the skull, which is flat. So it's different than long bones. Long bones, uh, basically, when they burn, they burn as a result of muscle shrinking and contracting along the axis of the bone. But with the skull and the scalp, you've got it exposing broad surfaces of the skull. And then once the skull bone becomes exposed to heat, it starts to undergo color changes of charring and calcination. Well, in the process of calcination, you get microscopic little fractures in the surface that's exposed directly to heat. And those little fractures sometimes will cause uh, heat fractures in the skull, and which can be, for the novice, they could be interpreted as traumatic fractures. But they're normal. Uh, they normally form during the fire. And in some cases, they can, they can break away during the fire. But they particularly break away during... Um, they can break away during suppression if the body is hit directly with a straight stream. Uh, during fire extinguishment, you can cause uh, parts, parts of the skull to become uh, detached, and, uh, which exposes the inner brain. Um, used to, there was, there was kind of a myth out there called the exploding skull theory that um, if you had no trauma, that it meant that your brain had no holes for any of the steam to vent from. And therefore, the skull in the fire, it would, the brain would boil and cook and everything, and it would cause the top of the skull to explode. And we've since found through testing and through research that this doesn't happen. And the, the opposite of that is that if there is any um, traumatic injury present to the skull that it wouldn't explode because there would be holes for bending of the of the steam. So you have this dichotomy of either having an intact head, which meant that you had traumatic injury and therefore, you know, it's a homicide or suicide. Um, and then the opposite, you had the exploded appearance of the skull uh, where portions of the top of the skull were missing and people would assume, oh, well, there's no traumatic injury there because the top of the head had exploded. When, in fact, we find through research that this happens because um, you have absence of the top of the skull from suppression. If the body's directly hit with a straight stream or if things fall on the body during suppression or during the fire. And then the biggest thing that we find is uh, fragmentation during handling when the body's placed inside the flexible body bag. Uh, this is where a lot of the damage, a lot of the post-mortem damage occurs is when a body, when a burned body is placed inside of a flexible body bag, uh, you've got points of pressure, particularly if two people are handling the bag at opposite ends, uh, everything is sliding towards the center. So one of the things I advocate is moving a body that's burned on a backboard, and that'll minimize damage to the skull. It'll minimize damage to the extremities, like the hands the more delicate parts of the body, uh, the feet, the ribs, anything that, you know, that the medical examiner needs to look at, um, you know, they can be, they can, they can be uh, fragmented in the body bag, and it's, it's kind of problematic. But to remedy that, I tell people to take photographs, lots of photographs of the body at the scene as it's originally found, because by the time it gets to the medical examiner, it's undergone a lot of handling changes which transforms the physical appearance of the body from being intact to all of a sudden being fragmentary, particularly the skull. And so now we know that the skull doesn't explode. Um, 
this past summer, I burned my hundredth body, and basically, you know, over repetitive testing and and observation, never seen a head explode in a fire. Well, and that's been something. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That it was kind of always had been a myth. Well, I say it's a myth, but for many years, I've been at this almost thirty, and we've you know back in the early days, so to speak, uh, that was. I was kind of believe that. And, and, you know, that's, that's why I'm saying through your research, so much of these things have been proven are what we would think about these burned bodies have been proven to be incorrect. But because when I first, right. when I first started in this, that that's what I was told. That's what we learned. I mean, that's what I learned too. Yeah. And, and so, uh, of course, through, through hearing you and, and others and, and research. And of course, you know, I, I'm in this business, but I'm a student of this business because I, I feel I should never stop learning. And so I've, over the years, this has come up, uh, that it's not the case, but something else you brought up that was a very good point. It was on my list to talk to you about was about moving burned bodies and using something like a backboard or, or some type of a, of a stiff board to, to, um, put them on uh, moving burned bo- bodies are very fragile. You know, and, and for those exactly. of you uh, that's listening out there that has never worked with a burned body, uh, of course, the longer they've been in fire, the more fragile they are. Uh, trying to get one out of a car where the car and the seat and everything is burned in and around them and collapsed on them is yeah. is almost like an archaeological dig to get them out and keep them in somewhat intact. It is. It's an archaeological excavation. You're going layer by layer. And, you know, you're pulling off debris and you're pulling off, you know, in a vehicle fire, you've got like the melted headliner and you've got glass and you've got fire debris and such on the body. And, yeah, you do go layer by layer. And it's a it's a tedious process and it's it's a difficult process when you got to commit a lot of time and a lot of resources to. And a lot of people don't like fire death because of that. Yeah. To get a, and then to get them out, you got to keep somewhat of a structure to them because parts will fall off in your hand. Um, right. And, and so you've got, and then of course the seed or anything else that's got moved around in the car, sometimes it's actually even melted to the body. You know, you've got parts right, of the yeah. seat. So you're trying to pull them off the seat, but the seat and them are now one because the muscles right. and the, and the polyester foam seat stuff is all connected. Well, and, right. and, and so it takes a lot because moving the bodies is very, is a very delicate process. And, and it's, you know, one thing on the, on the ground or on the floor, you can slide a body board under it or something. That's a different, though, in vehicles and things where I'm just cautioning all of our listeners to to really be careful. If you've the next scene you're on, you've got to move a body. Just be careful with the uh, because you're going to lose things. You could actually not only lose a body part or break it or tear something away that will be damaged for autopsy. You know, you could lose evidence that way as well. Correct. Talk for a minute about about. Ah, uh, what's the term? It's like a boxer stance. You know the, you know how the arms oh, come the up. Oh, posture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Why that occurs? Kind of explain to some of our listeners who don't really know much about fire deaths. What that? What they're looking at? Okay, one of the most obvious characteristics of a burned body is called the pugilistic posture, and that's flexion of the arms and legs. So instead of you know most dead bodies are limp, and but that's not the case in in fire deaths. Fire death, the body moves all throughout the fire. And so you've got two muscle groups in your body. You've got flexors, which allows you to flex your arm up uh, nice and strong. And then you also have another muscle group called your extensors, which allows you to relax your arm or extend it out. And your muscles that are the flexors are bigger and bulkier than the extensors. So they override 
these sensors when they're when they're heated. When they when you heat muscle, it shrinks and contracts it, and so it pulls on the bone and it pulls it basically pulls the arms and legs into what's called the pugilistic posture, which is flexion of the fingers, flexion of the wrist, flexion of the elbow, flexion of the shoulder. And then for the legs, you have flexion of the toes, flexion of the ankle, flexion of the knee, flexion of the hip. And then you also have smaller muscles in your lower back that flex. And you also have smaller muscles in your neck that flex. So this is kind of the, the it's, it's called the pugilistic posture because it looks like a boxer stance. And again, this is another one of those myths. Like 50 years ago, they used to think that if you saw a body like this, it meant that they were warding off an attacker. When in fact, you know, through testing, we've seen that the body moves and it'll go from being completely limp to all of a sudden flexing the arms and flexing the legs and moving during the fire. And in fact, there's movement all throughout the fire. Um, the body will uh, move towards heat sources. Uh, radiant heat is very important with the body. And the body will actually move towards, body parts will move towards heat sources during burning. And uh, we've observed that many times. We placed, um, we had a burning trailer, and then we placed the body outside the door as it was, uh, as flames were rolling out. So we got radiant heat onto the body that was laying outside. And the hand was laying on the belly. And slowly, the hand raised up and went back towards the open door where the open flame was. And that's because all the the uh, muscles and tendons on the back side of the hand were becoming heated and shortened. And so it caused the hand to move, and it moved towards the heat source. And we see this happens all throughout the fire. Wherever the heat source is, it'll dictate where the body moves and how it moves. Interesting. So and, and let's talk now, move into structures, houses, things like that. Okay. You know, I know that you've done a lot of research with uh, bodies in beds, bodies on the floor, bodies on a couch. You know, and then there's flashover and all kinds of things fires do inside of a house, and which we had one of our firemen on to talk to us about all that stuff. But, but fire does all kinds of stuff inside a house depending on ventilation. But right, there's a, so there's a lot of different aspects to look at. Talk to us just a little bit about some of the research you've done on inside structures, and then from there we'll point out certain things. Okay, um, as far as research on structures, we build structures that have uh, three walls and an open uh, wall, so that way we can see what's going on inside. So it has a ceiling, a floor, and three walls. And we furnish each of these, and they're called burn cells, and they're very typically used in um, fire research and fire dynamics. And um, and so what we do is we, we furnish this room as either a bedroom or a living room, and then we place bodies in there. And we either place them in chairs or we place them in the bed, or whatever the scenario is. And typically we light the fire with something natural in the room, either a waste paper basket or we'll light the sheets. If the body's in the bed, we'll light the sheets and let the sheets burn and then um, and then allow the bedding material to burn. And then that's what kind of starts the fire. And see, in structure fires, the fire develops a lot slower than what we see in the smaller contained space of a vehicle. So... Um, it, it may take several minutes before the entire room catches fire. Um, and that's called flashover, which is when all the contents of the room uh, burst into flames and you have equal temperatures at the ceiling as well as the floor. 
And so everything in the room is on fire. And so you have fire all around the body, which is going to cause a lot of movement and flexion. Um, as far as different furnishings, it depends on what the body's laying on at the time as to the burn patterns that it, that it will, will receive. And so basically, if you have a body that's on a bed, on a mattress, um, the body will remain suspended on that mattress, on the coil springs. And so after the upholstery and the foam and all that good stuff burns away, you've got the body being suspended on those coil springs. And it's very similar to a vehicle fire in that the body remains suspended on that front seat and you get even circulation and heat all the way around. Uh, so you get more even burn patterns. Now, this is in contrast to somebody who's on a couch, somebody who's in a, a recliner, somebody who's on a love seat. Um, initially, they'll be suspended for the first few minutes of the fire, but those types of furnishings are very poorly constructed in terms of their wooden framework. And so once all the foam and upholstery burns away, you're left with a very minimalist framework uh, that's usually wooden, and it collapses under the weight of the body. So the body ultimately ends up falling to the floor into the ashen layer, and which serves as protection, so it stops burning. Whereas the exposed surfaces of the body will continue to burn in that fire. Um, but it depends on, you know, when the fire is put out. Uh, it depends on the amount of fuels in the, in the house. It depends on the ventilation, how many windows are open, how many doors are open. Um, you know, there's a lot of variables that come into structure fires, which makes them really complex. Well, you know, I know that, uh, and you had mentioned about when the body, you know, falls from the, from the chair, but, but let's say a body was on the floor. I've worked some fire deaths where the body was, was pretty charred. Um, but the backside of the body was laying, um, uh, laying on its back and the backside of the body, uh, especially the back. Now the back of the legs were were a little bit charred, but there was a good portion of the back of the body that had little to no damage on it at all because it was in surface of the floor and the floor itself had not burnt from underneath. Correct. Because it had Correct. no heat to yeah. it. So it had no heat right. to it and it had, and the flame had never, now of course over time that would have changed, but you know, the flame, the, 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 the room had, was pretty well destroyed and the body had a lot of destruction to it. But, um, but yeah, what's what's underneath the body may not burn. You know, right. I I remember one time we had a we had a fire where um and I talked about something on the show a few a few weeks ago um where uh, the a dog kennel had been pulled out into the living room by the fire department and the, the dog that was in it was 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 dead, you know, it was charred beyond recognition. Aww. And but during the during the interview, uh, during the, the, the mop up, trying to figure out what's going on, somebody said, "Where's the where's whatever the child's name was?" You know, three years old. Nobody knew. Well, the child was what was in the dog kennel, and the dog kennel, after talking to the fire department, had been in the closet. And so the oh. fire department during mop up had found this dog in a kennel in a closet. Well, they just pulled it out so they could check for heat source, and you know, but. We didn't know where the child was, and so we we secured that anyway because we couldn't tell. And then, of course, through autopsy, we determined that it was a child. It had been very, very charred. Uh, arms and legs were all but gone. You know, it was basically just a torso. And so, but we couldn't tell it was human because it was small to begin with. So, of course, there were some child abuse issues there, and there were some criminal charges. Right. But, but yeah, the, wow. so when the fire started, the child see the, the child had been kept in this kennel because it was being punished. Well, the fire started, nobody could get to the child, and yeah, so 
Yeah. So, so there's a thing when you see some of these bodies, they may not look human at all. Right. Absolutely. Because of some yeah, of the things that take place in them. Yeah. Right. Because, because I've seen arms and legs burned off, you know, uh, you know, the head, the head may be there, but it may be so full of debris and things, um, that, uh, that you can't tell that it's a body. So, okay. Right. right. So, so in a, in a house fire, one of the things that really will affect the body is just the heat itself. So, so what if the flame doesn't actually get to the body, but the intense heat does? That still makes changes to the body, correct? Right, right. You can get changes to the body from radiant heat, like being next to a fire source, um, like sitting out in front of a campfire, you receive radiant heat, um, you know, the closer you are. Um, you get radiant heat, and then you also get direct heat. And uh, both heat sources will produce heat-related changes in the tissues of the body. So it doesn't have to be open flame. You can have um, you can have just simply radiant heat that'll cause burn damages. Well, what degree does it take uh, for a body to total for cremation? Uh, you know, for bones and all. You know, like like it's like if you send you send grandma to the crematorium and she comes back in a in an urn. What is the temperature, general temperature? Because I know it varies a little bit. Uh, to to render a body down, bones and all. Well, with the crematorium, they usually go about sixteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Sometimes more, sometimes up to two thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Just depends on their system. Um, and basically, they they burn the body for about uh, two hours. And sometimes more if the, if the body's larger. It depends on the size of the individual. Um, but within a crematorium, they're in a small little chamber, and which is body size. You know, it's basically the size of a casket. And so they're in a small little chamber that receives a perfect mixture of gas and air. And it basically burns everything so completely. It burns all the soft tissue, and it leaves the bone. And what happens is when they go to open the door, um, basically it looks like a skeleton that's been laid out. So all the soft tissues burn away, but the bones survive. And that's why I've studied burned bone is because it's the one thing that survives after the fire um, as far as physical evidence of the body. But now what crematoriums do is they take the, that skeleton, they rake it out, and they put it through a professional, um, like, food processor. It grinds it all up to the size of, you know, kitty litter. And that's what's given back to the family. It, gives, it grinds it into a uniform uh, piece. And so that's what cremains are, is when the body has been ground up into those fine, small pieces and returns to the families. But right after cremation, you open up the door, and it looks like a skeleton laid out in biology lab, nice and white. Um, and at that point, it's calcined, meaning there's no uh, organic materials present in bone. Because, see, in bone, you've got organic materials of collagen, of, of proteins, of blood, um, all sorts of stuff like that, That this, the organic part. But that gets burned out, and as it's burned out, it turns the bone black, kind of like burning a piece of wood. When you burn a piece of wood, it starts to char. Because you're pyrolyzing, you're burning the organic portions of the bone and the wood out, and you're leaving the inorganic portions, which is um, your calcium, your phosphates, your hydroxyapatite crystals. That's what survives the fire. 
and and those are inorganic. Those are mineralized components of the bone, and they retain the shape and they retain the size of human bones. So, in your case of the the kennel, um, you know, we look at anthropologists look at the shape and size of bones to determine if they're human or animal or not, and we find that. Uh, there's distinct differences between human and animal, not only in the shape and the size, but also in their uh, the structure, the microstructure of their bones uh, are very fundamentally different as well. So we can determine if it's human or not. Say, for example, somebody wants to, uh, you know, fake their own death and they decide to put a pig in a fire and fake their own death. Well, we can look at that pig bone, even if it's just bones left over and fragmentary bones. We can look at that structure. And basically, the, the 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 bone structure of animals is laid down in layers. It's called plexiform bone. It's layered bone uh, laid down layer by layer by layer. Whereas in human bones, we have rounded cellular uh, bone cells. And so, I look at the shape and the size of the bone cells. Are they long and linear? That means they're animal. Are they round and uh, circular? Well, they're human. So there's ways, even at the microscopic level, to distinguish between human and animal bone if there's ever a question. But obviously, autopsy um, is a is a really quick way to determine if it's human or autopsy or human or animal. Um, you know, based on the the size and shape characteristics of the organ systems, as well as the bones. Right now, you started as a as an anthropologist and then forensic anthropologist. And, of course, I know that you've come to the study of, of fire on bones. But, of course, in the middle of all of that somehow, um, you have created this research on body burning as a whole. So what was right. the, so what was the progression? I mean, did one day you wake up and think, hmm, boy, you're like to burn a body? <laughs> well, it was it was something like that. It was... Um Basically, when I was when I was in college, um, I did an internship at the medical examiner's office, and I got to see a lot of trauma. I got to see a lot of gunshot wounds. I got to see a lot of stab wounds, a lot of blunt force trauma. And as a student, not only am I supposed to look at this stuff, I'm also supposed to read about it. And I found that there was a lot of written material on gunshot wounds, a lot of research on gunshot wounds, a lot of research on stab wounds, a lot of research on blunt force trauma. There was nothing on fire. At best, there would be like a chapter or two here and there. And, you know, and even then, that information wasn't all that great. So I took an interest in uh, in the burned bodies that came in through the medical examiner's office and started looking at the burn patterns. And, uh, you know, we would notice that time and time again that the wrist would be broken away. Um, in, in both motor vehicle accidents as well as house fires. And I thought, well, you know, the wrist being broken away in a motor vehicle accident, that's explained by, you know, the impact. You know, you're holding on to the steering wheel. That makes sense that your wrist would break away. But then we started seeing it in house fires, the same pattern, the same breakage of the two bones in your forearm, your radius and ulna. And so started uh, I started burning individual body parts, arms and legs and heads, and and documenting the burn patterns that resulted from those. And I realized that during the fire, um, as as your arm is going into the pugilistic posture, as it's flexing, it's pulling skin tight across the outer wrist and it's pulling and it's and it's collecting 
a lot of soft tissues on the inner wrist. Well, the outer wrist would burn away. The soft tissues of the outer wrist would burn away, and it would leave bones. And so it would expose the, the radius and the ulna, the, your two forearm bones, um, around the wrist. It would expose those bones. And basically what happened is the muscles and the tendons continue to shrink and contract and pull on that bone, and it caused it to fracture during the fire. And so I was able to document it over and over and over again that it happens during the fire and not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal heat-related change that occurs during the fire. And we find that it happens to the ankles. It happens to the knees. It happens to the elbow. It's just a thing that happens to joints. And so by looking at patterns over and over and over and then studying them in the fire, um, we started to establish what's normal for a burned body. And then we started studying traumatic injury like gunshot wounds and blunt force trauma and sharp force trauma. And we started establishing the abnormal burn patterns. So we set up the normal burn patterns first in terms of how the body is expected to burn. And then after that, we started introducing traumatic injury. And it changed the burn patterns. And, of course, you said earlier, that was one of my questions I want to ask you, was how many bodies you burned. And you said you burned 100 bodies. Yeah, and, and and that's great, and that is, and this is uh, the term of endearment and respect that has been given you as the Dame of Flame is where you've earned Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> yes. So, so, and you know, the research that you've done, just like you said, when you started trying to find information, you couldn't find it because it wasn't out there because no one, very rarely, are they is someone present watching someone burn. So the research right. just wasn't there, and 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 uh, you know, again. And I I respect you to find there's a hole in something and start getting the information and start providing the the the, the, the ability to to research this because then people like me and others of us in the death investigation field now has research now has things we know skulls don't explode we know why we have different stances we know how a body burns where before and and I know that you're not the only one but you were certainly one of the spearheads to to really get this going. And, uh, and, you know, it, that's great research. Someone has, to, someone has to lead it, and you've led in this area and have, and have done a very great job at it. Um, we're, we're coming to the end here of, of our time, and, and so I, I'll ask you, is there anything, uh, in a minute I'm going to talk about contact information, but are there any last words you'd like to lead to our investigators? What are some big things they need to really look at at a scene? What's the most cautionary tale you can tell or something? Okay. Well, the most important thing that investigators can do at a scene is take a lot of photographs. I find that even before the body's been moved, uh, you know, finding the, the burn or being able to examine the original pristine burn patterns as the body was found in its original scene tells the most about the body. And one of the problems with our medical legal investigative scene, or, or, or not scene, but with the, um, with the system, is basically bodies are, are yanked a lot of times prematurely from the fire scene. And then they have to be examined independent of the fire scene by a medical legal investigator, usually a pathologist or a coroner. And they have to make, uh, you know, they have to make their assessment on the physical condition of the body independent of the scene, which a lot of times, um, you know, you have a little bit of information loss there. So for the investigators that are out there working the scene, the most important information you can provide to your medical examiner, pathologist, or coroner is going to be the original photographs of the body before it was moved. 
Because once you start to move the body, then things will fragment. Things will break away, um, particularly if the body's in the advanced stage of burning where you've got charring and calcination. You've got exposed joints. You've got exposed bone, particularly of the skull. Uh, one of the things that I do uh, out in the California course is we teach people to wrap the skull in saran wrap very loosely, not tight. And, of course, it has to be done after, uh, after it's cooled down. But that's one way to keep the teeth and the head uh, associated with, you know, with the head uh, during transport. So that way the medical examiner can have a, a similar appreciation of what the body looks like uh, in its original condition as opposed to when it goes into that black hole of a body bag and becomes kind of altered. Right. So and you, photography is, is, is absolute key. Right. And, you know, years ago when I, when I first started, we had 35 millimeters, but we took a lot of Polaroids. Then we had 35 right. millimeters. And, and uh, they always told us, ah, film is cheap. Film is cheap. Take pictures. Film is cheap. Well, now it's free because you've got, right. a, you've got a digital camera. Once you've purchased the equipment, the pictures are free at that point. And so I'm right, finding, you have no excuse. Yeah, there's no excuse. I'm finding some of these investigations where, where I'll consult every once in a while on a death case and they'll send me pictures and, and, and I may have 20 or 30 pictures. I know. And that's all they took. I mean, I know. Uh, you know, and I've had someone who's been 10 pictures, 10 pictures of a crime scene. I mean, I, I, I anyway, that's another, that's another program. But, and I'm right, not talking about fine. taking thousands for no reason i'm not saying that but there's a big difference between 20 and a thousand i mean somewhere in between there we need to get to where we're taking pictures hey let me decide it or you know or let the court decide or let whoever's looking at it decide oh yeah we don't need these but these are great you know right. you just take it it's 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 cheap it goes on a thumb drive and everybody can look at them so yeah so for the investigator out there take pictures take pictures from every angle from every side from every everything take pictures and you yeah, have, it, you, it, you you have a website um burned boned oh, burnedbone.com correct yeah yeah so t- what can we find on that website oh burnedbone.com is just my little uh, shingle hanging out there in the in the world of forensics for people that uh, are curious about uh, burn research, uh, what I do. Um, it's got some articles in there. Uh, it's got some pictures on there. Um, you know, every, but it's all educational. It's, it's, it's to kind of give a little taste of what I do. I've got a little blog on there that, that talks about when I travel and lecture to various places. It's just a, it's just a little introduction to, to familiarize people with who I am and what I do and the research that I do. So it's, it's a cute little website. Yeah, it's very well done. I, I really like it. It's got a lot of nice graphics on it, and there's a lot of information. So anybody out there listening that wants to get a hold uh, of you, they can, of course, uh, contact you through your website. Um, all right. the information is there, information about you, how to contact you. All of that is there. Whether they just want to find information or have a question or maybe maybe uh, use you in a consulting a case, so that's where they that's where they can find you. And I would send everybody there. I'll have links to that in the show notes on the website for this show and and everything that we've talked about will be there. So any of the listeners that want to follow up more, uh, and this is something that the that the that the training doesn't stop here. We I don't even think we scratched the surface. I think we just talked about a, a topic and we never even talked about the topic. So. So there's a lot of right. there's a lot of reading and research and and for those of you in the death investigation field, you need to spend time learning it yourself. Be a student of these things because it's a lifetime of learning. And let's look what we've talked about. So a few things has changed in the last 25 years. Uh, if you learned all about this 20 years ago, 
you know, or let's say you learned about it today, 20 years from now, there's going to be something different. If you haven't kept up right. with the learning, yeah, you're going to be behind times, wouldn't you say? Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just a few years ago, the, there was another myth that uh, if you saw blisters present on the body, people thought that that meant that it was an indicator of vitality that the victim was alive. And obviously that has huge connotations for the family who thinks that their loved one suffered. But we find that uh, blisters occur post-mortem. They're just simply a collection of the fluid in between the dermal-epidermal junction. And it, it, it's a normal post-mortem change as a result of heat. It's like uh, heat blisters when you when you use a paint gun. Right, and that's where I say that it is our responsibility to learn um, and to keep up with that. So, uh, Dr. Pope, thank you very much uh, for joining us today with this conversation. We've learned a lot, but like I said, we've only scratched the surface. And, and I want to thank you for your time. And maybe um, in, a, in a couple of months, we've got another topic or something specific. Maybe we can have you back on and we can talk again. Sweet. All right. Well, I sure thank you. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. All right, I'm back with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Pope. She is amazing. She is always willing to reach out and help us in the death investigation field with her knowledge. She's so down to earth. Again, Dr. Pope, thank you so much for being on the Corner Talk podcast and uh, continuing to work with us and, and be a part of who we are. So I just appreciate everything that you do. All right, as I close up this week, remember, listeners, if you do not have your subscription to the Death Investigator magazine, now is the time to get it. It is a growing publication. It's getting really close to one year old. We've got some fantastic writers, some fantastic articles in there. Uh, and of course, we also have a place where we list any conferences or training that we can find that you submit to us. And we do that for free. So you can find conferences and training maybe in your area uh, in the, our magazine. Now, if you're having a conference or a training or an annual event of some kind or whatever, if you will send me the information, I will be sure that it gets in the magazine. And then when it when the if you just send me what it is, the title of it, where it's at, uh, an email or our website address, something that I can point people to, we will list that in our upcoming events in the magazine. You're going to get a whole lot of eyes on your event by having it listed there. And so it's free and it's just a service that we do to our readers. So if you have something, please let me know. We have several there now and I know there's more out there and I'm just trying to get a one place to compile all of that information. So again, if you have not subscribed to Death Investigator Magazine, go to your Android or iOS device, download the app. You get a free issue, at least a free issue, and then you can decide if you want to subscribe to Ongoing from there. If you have anything out of me, any questions, you need anything, please, please, please just let me know if you have topics for the podcast, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, any of that, uh, I would love to hear from you. So until next week, everybody, find a way to be a blessing because as I always, always, always tell you, if you bless somebody, it'll come back to you tenfold. Above all, till next week, everyone, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.